And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Uh, We're going to be turning to Luke chapter 1 today as we look at the Song of Mary. Uh, Now one of my uh, favorite rituals during this Christmas holiday season is to listen to Mary Did You Know? Not because I particularly like the song, but because my family and I love to just rag on the song because the song goes, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would someday walk on water and all this stuff? Um, And my favorite thing to do is after every line of Mary, did you know, to say, yes, yes, she did know, an angel came and told her. And so, and so every year, we always, as soon as it comes on the radio, Mary, did you know, we always record ourselves singing the song, and then we send it to various family members and all, and we just have a little bit of fun poking at one another. Uh, so to be a little cheeky this morning, uh, my sermon is entitled, Mary Knew. Uh, so uh, just a, a little bit of holiday fun, just let you in on a little bit of the tradition that, that goes on in the Pierce slash Perez slash Crumb household, I guess, if you will. Um, but as we, we look at this passage today uh, of Mary's song, The Magnificent, as is most popularly entitled, uh, we're going to see a few things here. One, we see a, a praise of thanksgiving. We see a praise of thanksgiving. But we also see here that Mary knows Scripture really well. As a matter of fact, when, when Mary, she's at this time, she's visiting with, with Elizabeth, who at the time is pregnant with uh, John the Baptist, who would go into the wilderness and proclaim uh, a, a specific message to rejoice uh, and to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message that Jesus would go on to preach in his ministry Mary is visiting with, with Elizabeth, and as they are, they are sitting together, the, the baby inside of Elizabeth is jumping up and down, uh, thus in the womb proclaiming who this is that Mary carries in her womb. And so Mary, and, and one being told earlier by the angel that she would conceive and bear a child even though she was a virgin, uh, Mary going to visit and having this confirmed in Elizabeth is overwhelmed with thanksgiving and begins to praise the Lord. And you ask, well, how does one praise the Lord? And what's amazing about Mary's song is that Mary's song of thanksgiving is saturated with scripture. It is saturated in scripture. And so part of the cheeky of did Mary know, well, yes, is because Mary also, as we see in this passage, understands scripture. And so you might say, well, well, that doesn't make sense because if if Mary knew scripture and knew that Jesus was going to come and do all these things, then how come there are not Jewish people today that are not turning over to the Lord? And I would say, one, that's not necessarily accurate. Uh, But two, I would say that pretty much since Jesus has come, the synagogues have forbidden many of the passages that reference the Messiah to be spoken in the synagogues. And so it's not necessarily they don't you know they they uh, uh, that Mary you know knows some secret code that that no other Jewish person learned. It's that many of the Jewish synagogues teachings nowadays 
do not emphasize these passages because they clearly point out who the Messiah is in Jesus Christ. One of the biggest ones that you probably know right off the top of your head would be Isaiah 53, a passage talking about the suffering servant. This was, in fact, the first one that was taken out of most synagogue readings because it clearly states that the Messiah would be one who would be born to suffer. He'd be a man of sorrows. Scripture screams who the person and, and, and Lord of Jesus is. And so as we look at Mary's song today, we're going to see that there are really just two main parts of this, this song. You've got verses 46 through 50 in which Mary just rejoices for the grace and for the blessing that the Lord has bestowed on her. And then verses 51 through 55, we see here the strength of God and how that strength is going to be made manifest in the person that is Jesus Christ. And so we are going to begin in verse 46. And as I like to do, we're going to go verse by verse and just kind of go through and break them apart. But basically here, this is a song of rejoicing. And so my question for you today is this. How do you rejoice in the Lord? How do you rejoice in the Lord? Do you rejoice by simply saying thanks or do you rejoice in magnifying the Lord, not just through a, a simple thank you, Jesus, but actually singing and praising and, and reading back Scripture to the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this song is that this song is very similar to the song sung by Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. Hannah was also someone who was unable to conceive and bear a child, although Hannah was married and, and was just uh, uh, unable to uh, have a child, which is very interesting that the Lord always seems to work in, 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 very, uh, in, in very, very downtrodden, very cast-out women who are unable to do this blessing in the Lord. Lord says, let me show you my grace and my mercy and my might by bringing a child to the childless. And so Hannah, on receiving this news that she was going to have a child, she then sings a praise of thanksgiving and dedicates this child to the Lord. Mary's song right here is very similar to it. And in fact, has to be in the back of her mind as she is beginning to sing this praise. And so she starts out in verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so the, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, I, I know many of you are probably sitting here and probably gloss over it, but that term magnify right there, what does it mean to magnify? To magnify means to make big. I know it's very, it's a very hard concept, right? I mean, back in the day, I want to say this for the younger kids, uh, but back in the day, we used to have these things called magnifying glasses, right? Uh, you would see this in, in various Sherlock Holmes uh, movies, uh, or, or perhaps, you know, something of the Victorian age. Uh, my grandmother still has a magnifying glass in which you had this, this circle with a big lens, you know, right on there, right? And it had a little stick on it, and you would put it over a word, and that word would go from 12-point font to 50-point font, and it, it magnified it. We, as a child, I also burnt ants with it, but its purpose was to, <laughs> most, of the, most of the guys of my age are like, yeah, yeah, that's what we mainly used it for. It wasn't for the reading, uh, but, but we use this in order to make big the words that are sometimes possibly hard to see. 
And what Mary is doing right here, and the reason I have to explain this for the kids is because now there's an app that you know you just press a button and you know and they just don't get the full grasp of this. But but at the time, so Mary is singing this and she says, My soul makes big the Lord. My soul is crying out and is making big the Lord for what he has done. For my spirit rejoices in my God, my Savior. Mary, did you know? Notice this verse right here. It doesn't simply say that that she rejoices for God has given her a child. She rejoices in God, my Savior. A very big teaching that you hear is that Mary was somehow sinless because how can a sinless man be born of a sinful woman? However, you must sit here and say, how can Mary be sinless and yet need a Savior? If Mary was without sin, she would not be in need of a Savior. And yet here she cries out to make loud, to make big the name of her God, her Savior. Mary, did you know? For he has looked, verse 48, on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. You know, and at this time, uh, when, when this was written, the voice of a woman was very diminished. As a matter of fact, uh, if a, a woman had a, uh, an ill, uh, an injustice to be brought forward, she could not bring it on her own. Uh, the law required two men to bring forward such evidence in order for a trial to take place. It's quite interesting, actually, that the first person that Jesus uh, comes to after he is risen from the grave is not two men in order to expose the truth, in order to make this, this legal uh, uh, argument that he has risen from the grave. In fact, the person, the people he come to are, in fact, two ladies who he reveals himself to. And this is actually one of the proofs of the resurrection, because if you're trying to make up a lie, you would, in fact, try to find perhaps some Pharisees, somebody of high rank to, to convey this message. But instead, Jesus reveals himself to two women. Why would you put that detail in there unless it was true? Here, Mary, not just a woman, but also, remember, a young woman at that, is now magnifying the Lord because the Lord has chosen her to be the mother of this child that was to come through. That you must remember, we have been waiting on since the beginning of creation. Because it's in Genesis chapter 3 that sin comes into this world and stains humanity. And thus separates us from a good and holy God. That separates us from a relationship that we were, we were created to be a part of. It is in this that the Lord says in verse 15 that there will be a seed born of woman who will come and who will strike the head of the serpent. We find out later in Genesis that eventually that this child will come through the lineage of Abraham, that it's out of Abraham that many nations will be blessed. 
And then later we find uh, in, in Samuel that this, this, this person that we're waiting on, that we're waiting to hear from, is going to eventually come from the line of David. And so throughout all of Scripture, we sit here and we read and we say, when, oh God, is this going to take place? When, oh God, is this going to transpire? This sin that has, has caused us to be separated from the beginning of creation is still here. How long, oh Lord? And now... We no longer have to wait. And Mary says, thank you. My soul magnifies your name. You have blessed this individual. You have looked on the humble estate of this servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of everything that the Lord has chosen to do. And, to, and remember this, this is not plan B. This is plan A. It was not that God messed up. And so now he's having to scramble. And so now he's chosen this 14-year-old girl possibly to, to go ahead and, and to conceive and bear a child through the Holy Spirit. But instead, at the dawn of creation, God said, I want to make a way in which humanity can love me for who I am. And the only way to have true love is to have true rejection. And so because of that, God from the beginning of time ordained that this was the way that it would work. And throughout all of history and everything that has transpired, nation has risen against nation. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. The people were enslaved. We see that everything had been orchestrated for this moment. And that God in his sovereign plan has decided to take the humble and exalt them. We see here that Mary, the most unlikely of candidates, is indeed one of the centerpieces of God's plan for redemption. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I'm going to read on to verse 50. And his mercy for those who fear him, or is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In these two verses, Mary actually brings out three attributes of God. He's, she says for one in verse 49 that he is mighty. Uh, he says, or she says, excuse me, that in verse 49 he is holy. And in verse 50 that he is merciful. He is mighty, as we mentioned. He has orchestrated all of creation to come down to this moment here in Luke chapter 1. Everything has come because of God's sovereign plan, and nothing has strayed from it. He is mighty. He is the controller. He is the one who is able to hold together not just the fabric of the universe, but the very fabric of this plan of redemption for us. He is holy in that in Genesis chapter 3, when sin comes, it separates humanity. He is holy in that he cannot be around sin. He cannot be around imperfection. And yet he is merciful in that even in our lowly, sinful state, when death and destruction were due us, that God made a way in order for us to be able to not just have life and have it abundantly, but to be able to fulfill this mandate that we have to be in perfect uh, relationship with our Creator. 
And by doing so, we come now to Mary, who is going to carry this Savior, who would bring forward the path for us to have life, for us to have the ability of choice to choose whether or not we want to be in relationship with this holy God. You know, this, this, this verse here in verse 50 is very close to, to Psalm 103.17. Mary here, when she sings, is singing Scripture. She is singing back Scripture. And if you think about it, verse 50, And he is merciful for those who fear him. Proverbs 9, I think all of us can probably recite this. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. We've been going through the crucifixion as of late uh, in Sunday service, and we, we just recently finished talking about the, the uh, criminal on the cross, right? One turns and says, if you are truly the Son of God, you know, save us. And the other one turns to Jesus, and he, or he turns to the, uh, uh, the other thief, and he says, are you not fearful? Do you not know who this is? We are justly receiving our reward, but this man is innocent. He says, do you not fear God? And he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I will. He is merciful for those or to those who fear him from generation to generation. And then we get to verse 51. 51 through 55, Mary kind of pivots a little bit. She, she goes from uh, 46 to 50, praising the Lord for this plan that she is able to be a part of and, and praising God for, for the blessing that, that he has bestowed her. But in verse 51, we get a change of tone. And instead of just praising God for his blessing on her, we see that she begins to praise God for, her bless, or for his blessing on humanity. And not just humanity, but specifically, we get a little bit of language here that details Israel. Verses 51 through 55 very much read like Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm, and if you don't mind, and I hope you don't because I have the microphone, uh, I'm going to read Psalm chapter 2 to kind of give you an understanding of, of where I'm coming from in this. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away. So here we see in this, this passage that the kings of the earth, the, the leaders, the rulers, uh, uh, they are coming together in order to uh, finally overthrow the Lord and his anointed, this, this Messiah who would eventually come. And then we get to verse 4. He says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, the Lord in this moment, when, when man rebels, laughs and says, Resistance is futile, if you're a Star Trek uh, Borg fan. Apparently no one is. Uh, but, but essentially, that no one would be able to overthrow the Lord or his plan. We see this plan begin to transpire here in Luke chapter 1. 
in the most unlikely of circumstances. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. One commentator said that this is probably prophetic in that while she is reminiscing probably to these messianic psalms of Psalm 2, that this is exactly what this child that she carries will do one day. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Being a Jewish girl, she would have been uh, taught the scriptures and, and every year given a reminder at Passover of what the Lord has done for Israel. You have to remember there is that 40-year period in which the people uh, of, of, of at least one million survived in a resourceless land, and yet they were filled to their content with bread, with manna that came from heaven, with quail that flew in and gave them meat, with water that sprouted out of the springs of the desert. The Lord provided for his people. And here we see that she reflects back on it and says that he has filled the hungry with good things and with the rich he sent away empty. Now this is not Mary saying ha ha ha, ha ha ha, rich people aren't going to get anything. Instead what we see here is that Mary is commentating on the humility that is required. Instead, it is normally one who is very resourceful, who is unable to submit. Think of the rich young ruler, right? He comes to the Lord, he comes to Jesus and says, all right, what do I need to do? And what's the greatest commandment? And he, Jesus says, you know, he starts listing off commandments and the rich young ruler says, I have done all of these things. And then Jesus turns to him and says, all right, go sell all your possessions and follow me. And the ruler walks away unable to. Where are you in your life that you are unable to submit to the Lord? Do you have something that you want to keep yourself? I know that is a, a struggle for me. I love my pride. I love my anger and I love it when I can hold that and feel empowered over those who come against me. And yet, what the Lord tells me to do is to submit, to humble myself, to allow him to be the ruler and guider of my life. Where do we as a church need to submit to the Lord and in his plan? Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Verse 55, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The Lord has caused a great thing to transpire. Everything that we are waiting from in Genesis is finally coming to fruition here in the narrative, in the gospel narrative. This Savior, Christ the Lord, would eventually be born. 
He'd eventually grow up. He would go to the synagogues, go to the temple, and confound the teachers of the questions he was asking. He would go into ministry. He would, he would be uh, praised and honored by thousands, and yet, at the end of his life, be left with just a few. And what would probably be a, a story of someone's life that we would say is a failure, going from the praise of thousands to the weeping of a few to death, we find that Jesus, as we just sang a while ago, did not die in ruin, but instead, three days later, rose in victory, defeating death and then defeating sin, not so that he could exalt himself, but that so that way he could extend to us the ability to have life, the ability to have relationship. That this sin, this, this guilt that had been uh, in, within humanity since Genesis chapter 3 could finally be thrown away. And he tells us that all we must do is to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, as we close here today, we must ask ourselves, do we repent? Here, as we see in Mary's song, the Lord has done great things. We magnify the Lord with our soul for the blessing and for the grace and for the mercy and for his might. And that through, uh, throughout all of history, throughout all of the narrative of history, everything that could go wrong, that the Lord was still mighty in making sure that everything would happen to where this moment would transpire. That from the womb of a virgin shall a son come forth who will live a perfect life that we were called to live, that will die the death that we deserve, and will raise from the dead, thus defeating death and defeating sin. And all he tells us to do is as he told the people in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So today, as we go into a time of invitation, we are going to ask this one question, Father, where must we repent? Where must we repent? Are we putting our strength not in the Lord's plan, but instead putting the strength or our strength in our family or friend relationships? Are we finding our strength in our bank accounts, which, I don't know about you, this is Christmas, my bank account's looking bad. <laughs> Are we finding our strength instead in a bank statement? Are we finding our strength in where we live? So let's face it. We've got it pretty good here in Wakulla County. There's not much that's going on. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the biggest controversy we've had in the past two weeks is whether or not Christmas lights went up somewhere. We are doing, this is, a, this is a wonderful area to be in, and yet this is an area in which we can overlook. Lord, do we repent not making the gospel known to a people that we think are okay, but yet are lost and dying? Where do you find your strength? Where can we repent? Not so that way we continually feel bad about ourselves, 
but so that way we can, as Mary does here in verse 46, we can magnify the Lord for his goodness and his graciousness that even though we were still sinners, Christ came to die for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. We praise you. We honor you. We thank you for just your goodness towards us. Father, we do not deserve anything that you have given us, but yet, Father, you have given us everything. Father, we are reminded of this song that Mary sang. She sings and, and praises Scripture to you. Father, let us reflect on Scripture and what it says during the season. Father, let us reflect on Scripture and praise you for the good that you have done to us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.